Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, I have a conversation with retired pararescueman Jimmy Settle. Jimmy details his arduous journey to becoming a pararescueman, or PJ, in his book, Never Quit. He talks about the endless hours of training and everything it took to become a PJ. All of that training ultimately led him to a heavy firefight in the Water Per Valley in Afghanistan in 2010. He was part of a military operation called Bulldog Bite 2 Charlie. And while on his way to provide medical aid, he was shot in the head. Fortunately, the bullet didn't penetrate his skull. After he received medical attention, he got back out there and continued his duties as a PJ. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Jimmy Settle. When Jimmy got back from war, he felt broken. His career as a PJ had ended long before he planned it to. On top of that, he was experiencing serious physical pain and PTSD and couldn't find any help. As a result, he went through a period of suicidal depression and homelessness. Since then, Jimmy has found help and salvation in therapy, family, and college. He says that life's funny like that. You don't always see the spot you're going to land when you let go of the thing you're holding on to. So here he is, Jimmy Settle. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! Dude, I've had a crazy long day, and so my brain, this is going to be fun. We're going to see where what Jimmy's brain can do. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. This is great. What Jimmy's brain can do. Well, right on. So Jimmy Settle, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Cody. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So how are things in your neck of the woods? Well, I'm down in outside of the Seattle area. And uh, today is really nice, but it has been one of the wettest winters on record. And uh, it's different down here. You know, I grew up in Alaska. And winters, they, people really talk about in, winters in Alaska being really dark because the sun isn't up very much. But man, I tell you what, being down here during these raining months, I think there's less sunlight here because the clouds are always on top of you and they're thick. So 
I think you get more sunlight in Alaska in the wintertime than you do down here in Seattle. So it's uh, it's been a bit of a transition, but uh, I mean, I'm not really complaining. I don't have to scrape my car off every morning. So <laughs> life's good. I'm happy to hear that, man. <laughs> so before we really get into it, I wanted to tell you that I recently read your book, Never Quit. Wow, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, man. So which details your arduous journey to become a pararescueman? Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I kind of wrote this little sidebar question that uh, I just kept thinking as I was reading it and I, I wanted to see what you would have to say about it. So throughout the book, you talk about how many push-ups you had to do and how you don't like doing pull-ups. Do you <laughs> still do you still do push-ups or pull-ups at all? I do push-ups uh, just about every day. Um, pull-ups, though, are st- they're the bane of my existence. It's the one demon that I've chosen not to face. <laughs> I've just walked away from them. <laughs> uh, so um do you, so i'm sorry i don't know how your podcast works in terms of the way you edit it because should i back up and maybe explain the book and rescue or how do you want to dance around this dance because i feel like we went straight to smooching and we missed some of the slow dances <laughs> i like that went straight to smooching <laughs> um you know, I have I have questions written out, so usually I just like to follow that trajectory. And if we happen to kind of go off the beaten path, that's totally fine as well. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So as I was reading, I couldn't help but think of something Roger Sparks said during his podcast, which is that everyone wants to be a voyeur to the peep show. Yeah. In that scenario, I would be the voyeur and you would be the peep show. <laughs> Why do you think people have this inclination to be spectators to stories like yours? Well, I think uh, you so much aren't the voyeur to the peep show as you are the uh, carnival barker outside saying, Hey, come here, look what I got. <laughs> <laughs> And why why are people drawn to that? That's a it's a good question. I think part of it could be people are wanting to just be simply entertained, and it's just a genre that's very entertaining. You know, for a long time, uh, we we have used warriors and warrior like scenarios as forms of you know entertainment and stuff, but. I think if you keep digging past that top layer, um, people people may be wanting to see people doing something that they are unwilling to do or something that they're afraid to do or something that they really want to do. And maybe it's a form of inspiration. So I guess like it goes the whole spectrum. It could be a source of inspiration, you know, or simple entertainment or the voyeurism of glad that's not me, but boy, that sure is cool. You know, I'm super guilty of it too. I love watching like football games and hockey games and, you know, watching a great pass or something like that's cool, but 
sometimes those hits are where they're, those are the entertaining parts. Mm -hmm. And that's a good question, man. I gotta, I'm gonna think on that some more. I really like what you just said about it being empowering, right? Inspirational because, right. You know, as I was reading your book, uh, I, (laughs) I have kind of this like personal regimen of just doing as many pushups as I possibly can. Um, and it's because I'm not really a gym person. You know, I, I grew up, Mm -hmm. I grew up skateboarding and snowboarding and was healthy as a byproduct of doing those things. Right. Sure. Yeah. And so as I got older, I realized, oh my gosh, like these things are expensive snowboarding in specific. (laughs) So true. (laughs) And so as a result, I kind of stopped doing them, you know, as much as I used to. And so as I've gotten older, I'm like, all right, I got to I got to do something. I can't go from one place being sedentary to another place being sedentary. And so so yeah, your book uh as well as Rogers has been inspiration for me to just you know, crush push-ups. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. You know, one of the coolest outcomes of this book has been getting feedback from total strangers about how it's impacted them. And like this one really stands out where this uh, 10 year old boy, uh, he hand wrote me a letter and, uh, and sent me like a little Lego mini fig of a little dude and a, and a, and a crayon. That was a cool color. He thought I'd like, and, and like this handwritten letter from a kid, like I got fan mail, like real fan mail. This is different than like, a Facebook thing, which I never really, I'm not very good at social media. So there might be a a thousand pounds of love out there that I'm just ignorant to, but uh, to get something in the mailbox, like tangible and like this little kid took some time out of his day. Like it's it's clear he put a lot of effort into it. And so like, that's pretty cool. So when I wrote the book and, you know, I didn't write the book alone either. I actually like most of the heavy lifting was done by Don Reardon and he's a local up there in Anchorage living up in Bear Valley, but he grew up and spent a lot of time all over the villages all around Alaska and in the bush. And he's now he's a, he teaches English at UAA and uh, just a really solid dude, really fun guy to hang out with and talk to. And he's, he's very good interviewer too. So it was really easy to write the book with him because he knew how to construct a good story arc and a good storyline. And so he gave me the freedom to just kind of talk all willy nilly about the stories of my life. And he was able to kind of cherry pick and then form the narrative from there, you know, and put, put the story together so that it flowed nicely and was entertaining, you know, and, uh, and also kind of met my goal for writing the book was really like twofold. One was to uh, call attention to this really small community of people, this pararescue community. And uh, because, yeah, they're military and all that, if you're on the outside looking in, but they're a little different, you know, because when I think of the military, I think of guys who are bloodthirsty wanting to just crush skulls and kick doors in, you know, but with, with the aim of destroying the enemy or conquering a territory or something, something cool like that. Uh, 
Whereas the pararescue community, the PJs, they have that, that, those same teeth, but the way they perceive using them is much more surgical, so to speak. And the, the drive for the mission isn't so much to get blood as more to stop bleeding. You know, we're going in to stop a bleeder. Somebody shot and we're going to go fly in and throw some tourniquets and get him the heck out of there and into a safe place. Or, or we're going to go pick up a lost, injured, hurt hiker in the back country of Alaska somewhere or a, a boat that's slowly sinking. You know, we do all this crazy stuff. It's a really, but the thing is, is like, these are people who are not just going out to rescue and help people, but this is pretty much when the PJs, the pararescue team is involved, it's essentially the last line of defense. There is nobody coming after the PJs. There's nobody more capable. This is like uh, your, your, your simple stuff hasn't worked, and now it's really serious, and we need the heavy hitters, and that's yeah. what the PJs are. But they're really under the radar. And you know what? That's part of the culture, too, is they're not doing it for fame and glory and any of that. The glory is in the save. It's in saving lives or achieving personal challenges. It's not in having cameras in your face and people asking for autographs. That's a weird byproduct. Uh, but so one part of my writing the book was to you know bring awareness to this career, career field because I think it's incredible and that there's people who do this is really cool. And we need to inspire future generations, you mm -hmm. know? And so there's that whole element of it. But then there's also this part where as a PJ, you run out and you go, you, 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 the way life works in Alaska as a PJ up in Alaska is you have a shift just like everybody else in the world. And like your shift will be from, you know, 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. or something. I'm just making up numbers, right? 7 to 4 p.m. And then if you're on alert during that time and a mission pops off, you could be gone for an indefinite amount of time. Mm -hmm. And you kissed your wife and you kissed your kid and you stepped out the door that morning with a cup of coffee in your lunchbox saying, see you at dinner. And now it's three <laughs> days later and you're still in the back country somewhere with, with maybe a sat phone and the PJ teams have contacted the family, obviously, but all your plans are immediately disrupted. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then you go through these crazy scenarios and you come back home and oftentimes there's not a lot of like debrief between the family members. There's not a lot of like, Hey, I'm going to tell you what I did. Like for me, I didn't because it scared the heck of heck out of my wife, like me jumping out of airplanes and shit like that. And all this other crazy stuff, it stressed her out and she didn't want, <laughs> she didn't like it very much. So unfortunately that led to me withholding lots of information. And I don't think I was alone in that. And so another reason I wrote the book was so that family members of pararescue team members would have a deeper understanding of A, what it took to get there, and B, what the job's like. And so that they maybe they could be more compassionate towards their loved one, hopefully reducing divorce rates and stuff like that. But more importantly, maybe helping make connections 
within the couples. You know, you know what I mean? Uh, does that sound hokey? But that's just, I don't know. I, my, when the lady I was married to at this time, when I was a PJ, when I returned from my deployment, we got divorced. It, it didn't end well. And so I wrote this book many years later with the hope that maybe I could help prevent some of that pain or something like that. You don't know. I don't know. No, I think that that all sounds really plausible and believable. I mean, one of these questions that I have that I'm looking at right now is what do you think is the importance of telling your story? And you kind of alluded to a lot of that, but I also have written here, uh, you know, therapeutic, instructional entertainment. Well, I mean, therapeutic wise, going through this book writing process with Don and then sharing the rough draft with the dudes who are in it. So like people read it while it was still in rough draft and gave me their blessing before I proceeded. And I made changes accordingly, like people suggested changes and I did so. And so what that did is it kind of like cemented my memories, validated a lot of my feelings and made it real, you know, because sometimes you have crazy experiences in your life. And then like, it seems like something you're never going to forget. And it's so powerful. But then, you know, a few days down the road, it's, you're like, you almost forget you had it. And then you look back like a month later and you're like, did I imagine that? Or was that TV? Mm -hmm. And sometimes working so hard to be able to do the things I did and then not being there anymore, the memories, you know, it's, it's easy to question memories. And so it was kind of like almost a little like maddening in a way, not like angry, but like driving me crazy a little bit. And so it was really good timing because Don kept pushing for this book and uh, it was really good timing because I was also linked up with a really awesome mental health uh, professional. <laughs> the guy's fucking awesome. He does uh, EMDR, like what John Stallone said he uh, does. And this guy yeah. does it. And I mean, shout out to check out this guy's name. Shout out to Dr. Brock Weedman. <laughs> Brock Weedman, man. He makes me feel so good. He's he's awesome. He's down here in Seattle. So, And he takes TRICARE for any vets. If you guys, uh, it's hard to find uh, mental health professionals that take uh, the insurance they give veterans. And which is really weird, right? You'd think that would be like universal, but... Uh, it's really tricky to find decent well, any docs period that take it and then to ha- score a really awesome one. I, I I'm very thankful for my, for my team. Why do you think that it is so difficult to find mental health? If you are a veteran, I know why now I just recently learned it's um, largely due. So there's a, <laughs> the, the common name for the insurance that the VA provides veterans uh, for coverage outside of VA hospitals, it's called uh, TRICARE as the slang term, and it's run by U.S. Healthcare. It's a gigantic insurance corporation. Anyhow, this particular program that the veterans are on, TRICARE, so if you go see the same doctor, I have a friend who's a doctor, and we had a nice talk about this because I asked him the same question. Dude, why is it so hard to find docs? And he's mm-hmm. like, here's why. If I take a TRICARE patient, 
and I see them for X, Y, or Z medical condition, and I bill at this rate, TRICARE gives me 100%. If I see the same patient for all those things, but I preface it with, we had like a mental health discussion, like say, you know, because a lot of folks are on like mood stabilizers and SSRIs, and you have to have that conversation with your doc. Hey, is this working? How's your mental health? How's your moods? Things like that. If he puts that as the leading element of his uh, claim to the uh, to Tricare, Tricare will knock it down from 100% down to 75%. Really? Even if he does all the other medical stuff. Say you went in with a broken arm and you're like, hey, I just need you to fix this. And I mean, that's way too extreme for this guy. Let me back that up a little bit. Say you had a cold. And then you also were like, hey, let me just touch base on this real quick. And he built it that way. It gets knocked down. However, he said, if you game the system and you put the medical term first and the psychological term second, they'll pay you at the medical rate at 100%. So he's like, there's something funky in there about mental health care within this insurance program. And then I talked to somebody else who runs a mental health clinic down here who's on like the 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 house side, the logistics side, doing all the billing and stuff. And I was asking like, so what's the deal with TRICARE? Like, how come a lot of uh, providers don't take it? Like, what's the deal? And they're like, well... If they pay on time, which they never do, most of the time they pay in 90 to 180 days for mental health care. And they don't even pay mental health professionals at the full rate that they charge. So the example she used is like they have their psychiatrist. If you, if you are unfamiliar with the mental health care system, there's two mental health care actors that are providers there's a lot of therapists and stuff, and those fall under like psychologist sort of category. Okay. And then there's psychiatrists, and psychiatrists aren't really there for therapy so much. They're there for prescribing meds and doing tests that involve like brain neurotransmitters and like all the chemicals in your brain and maybe some massive diagnoses and things like that. But they're not really there for the day to day grind. They're there. With a uh, with a client or whatever, a patient or whatever, they're there to like dispense, assess, treat, adjust, come back around, as opposed to uh, the therapists who you sit down in front of for like an hour, once a week or so, and those are the ones doing the grunt work. And so, my personal example, I believe my therapist, he charges upward. Uh, Doc, Doc Weedman, I don't know what he charges. Actually, I don't, I'm going to, sorry, Doc Weedman, I don't want to out your prices. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> so it's been, I've, I've heard though that, uh, and none of these conversations are coming from Dr. Weedman, so don't get him in trouble, please. Anyways, uh, when TRICARE does pay, they, they ding the mental health providers the same. Like if you charge a hundred bucks for a session, they're only going to pay you 75. And so whatever your rate is, that's, I mean, so that's kind of a drag because other health uh, insurance companies, and I, I, I know a couple, but I'm not off the top of my head, but they do pay for, oh, uh, Primera. Uh, so I asked, like, who's, who's the top dog insurance then? Like, who, if I'm going to be messed up, who do I want? And 
this lady mentioned a couple, but Primero is one of them that she mentioned. So anyways, do your homework if when it comes to insurance. And the thing is, is the stuff you're going to find online through the insurance company is going to only paint part of the picture. Something I never considered that I would suggest to future insurance shoppers would be to talk to providers and see what their experience is like with the insurance companies. Which ones are a pain in the butt to get referrals for? Which ones are hard to find docs? Which ones are easy for docs? You know? So anyways. For sure, that's, yeah. That's a pretty crazy tangent. It's a weird soapbox to stand on, but. <laughs> no, but I think it's important. I think it's an important soapbox to stand on because there are so many people uh, standing in that same exact line, right? A hundred percent. And like, there's a lot of uh, patriotical powwow in like the upper echelons of society, right? Like where you're a patriot or you've got to beat it. Yet, when it comes to the actual treatment and care for those who stood up to the highest degree of patriotic duty, the care for them could use some help, you know? And like a lot of, lot of dudes I know are, they the, hard, the biggest struggle they have is trying to find providers for everything just trying to find somebody who's going to take the insurance. You know, you asked about chronology as far as, you know, where do we start in the beginning of this? And I think I'm going to, if you don't mind, kind of take ah. us a little bit further back. Mm -hmm. So my dad is a recovering alcoholic. And when I was a kid, my parents would bring me to AA meetings with them. Holla! Yeah, you had a similar experience with your mom, right? Absolutely. Where she took you to meetings with her. A ton. Yeah. I think it's safe to say that AA and NA meetings are probably not really appropriate places for kids. <laughs> but but I also think there are a lot of life lessons to be learned there. I completely agree with you. A hundred percent. Um where do you stand on the whole program? Let me let me phrase this. Are you one who's known to consume intoxicating substances? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think right. that I all right. <laughs> I think that I <laughs> I am uh probably for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, a binge drinker. You know, I think that my drinking mentality is probably pretty similar to like a frat boys. But as I've gotten older, you know, I've I've definitely curbed my drinking. Right. Those mornings get rough. Oh yeah, they do. I mean, I always I always like the memes that are are like, you know, being hung over in your twenties and, you know, you're living La Vida Loca with your tank top on and then the next uh, you know, the next picture is being hung over in your 30s and you're in a full body cast. <laughs> That's so true, man. <laughs> yeah, so I feel that. Yeah. I uh dude, and you're right, like being a little little one in those uh so uh, the reason I asked that is so I can know where to walk and <laughs> cut because as you are aware and others are too that in order to uh succeed in that path uh, that is dictated by the AA and NA fellowship, you have mm -hmm. to commit like, like a religion. And, uh, some people can get pretty militant about it. And, uh, for sure. 
And so uh, when we broach that subject, I always enter very cautiously to feel the crowd out so I know which way to stand. Because I'm like you. I enjoy alcohol. I really enjoy cannabis. But like you just so beautifully said, man, I can't do hangovers. <laughs> they hurt. Yeah. I can't afford the loss in productivity and stuff. So I really have to manage my drinking. And in, in some weird ways, in hindsight, I almost admire some of those older hardcore alcoholics that were in the meetings that were like telling stories about drinking all night and then putting liquor in their coffee throughout mm-hmm. the day and working and pulling it off. I'm like, geez, I can't do that. I just can't do it. You know, like I physically can't, like my stomach can't handle it. Not saying that I would do it, but uh, I just can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like just a couple drinks just to kind of loosen up and have fun with my friends and have conversations, get creative, stuff like that. I'm not out to get blacked out or smashed or whatever. I'm not, I don't drink with an agenda. I drink for enjoyment. And uh, that's something that's kind of come with age too. But anyways, yeah, back to being a kid in meetings, man, there were some crazy stories and like, (laughs) it really made me, uh, I guess in a weird way, hearing a lot of other people's failures and stuff sort of uh, vaccinated me against some of the common mistakes, I guess. I mean, for sure. You know, it's because you've seen how that where that road leads. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, yeah. So do you have any uh, particular uh, locations you remember going in general or specific a lot of churches. I was going to say church basements. Yeah, church basements for sure. And you have the shitty Folgers coffee and <laughs> and the donuts and the sweets. I mean, yeah, drunks love sweets, right? Because yes. they're not getting the sugar yep. from the alcohol. That's right. Did you go? Obviously, I mean, we're close to the same age. So there was also probably half filled with smoke. Yep. Yeah. Did they? Oh, yeah. Cigarettes smoke like crazy. They smoke like chiefs. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really interesting culture. You know, I um, I was around Al-Anon as well, right? Okay. So my mom, my mom would read Al-Anon, right, to, to help her with my dad's alcoholism, right? And so, so she was learning that way. And so it's really interesting. You know, I, I think that you really nailed it when you said that it's like a religion, yeah, I mean, you and I are both have probably had some very parallel or very exactly similar social encounters with the part members of our family. You know, I mean, for me, it was my mom. Yeah, uh, that's supposed to be anonymous. And I don't like that was the when it came to writing the book, that was. Uh, oh, are you are you opening something? Yes, as a matter of fact, I am. Can you hear that? Yeah, I could hear that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, I'm uh, opening a small b- bottle of vodka right now. My uh, preferred oh, nice. drink is uh, a vodka soda. It's, uh, I prefer- no way. That's that's my preferred drink. <laughs> nice. Do you uh, what flavor soda do you or so I do the soda water. What's your favorite flavor? Oh, I just do club soda. Nice. I like the uh, yeah. the lemon 
on top the uh yeah same <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome <laughs> that that's funny man that's crazy you could hear that i'm sorry about that <laughs> no you're good I, I i think we recovered really well i like that <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah dude uh so your mom what was the Al-Anon process like because that's something i never was exposed to i was uh I was just a kid drug around until I was old enough to say, I'm going to stay at home. You know, the extent of my knowledge of Al-Anon only came later in life when my mom told me that my grandma, who also dealt with a lot of drunks in her life, kind of handed her Al-Anon book off to my mom. And then my mom read the book. And so I think that it was more personal knowledge. I'm not Sure, if my mom ever went to Al-Anon meetings, you know, these support groups. But I think that she just read the book and then kind of used that knowledge, you know, from from then on. Do you think it helped her? I think so, yeah. I mean, she's brought it up enough to this day that I think that it made, you know, it made enough of an impact on her and helped her make certain important decisions that she is proud that she made. Well, that's, uh, well, if, if you want to look at it as a form of religion, then that would be counted as a success story. Cause that would hopefully be like the driving intention of a kind religion, you know, or a religion that's aimed at uh, human improvement, you know, something that leads you to make decisions in your life that you can look back on and be like, okay, very glad I did that. Absolutely. Well, I think that that's kind of the point of life, right? Is to be a better person today than you were yesterday. I 100% agree with that. Yep. Uh, Roger probably has some really awesome Hagakuru, Hagakuri, whatever quotes. Yeah, he's got some badass samurai quote about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, I think that's something that... Uh, is uh i mean otherwise you're just wasting this gift of life mm-hmm. like i totally get taken a den day i'm down with den days love den days like you know day where you just netflix and chill and chores aren't getting done things like that we need those right but for sure i also don't think that should last a long time and uh i think that uh on a daily basis, if you're not challenging yourself or learning yourself, learning things and learning yourself, I guess I spoke correctly. Uh, I, in a weird, sorry, pause for a sec. Related, I uh, have been I'm in college right now, and uh, as an adult, which is a fun experience. We can talk on at great length for that about that. But uh, right now, I'm in crazy psychology class and it's got me thinking about myself a lot like thinking about my childhood and traumatic experiences and things like that and uh mm-hmm. which is funny because we just pretty much we've already nailed it it's pretty awesome and uh what do you mean we already nailed it oh just in terms of like uh like the, the major uh forming points were the experiences of growing up with an alcoholic parent Mm-hmm. and then the experience of uh, tasting truly bloody violence 
that, you know, where lives were lost and stuff like that. And I nearly lost my own in a real mm-hmm. way. Zoof. It's not even like when times people say like, oh, I almost died or I almost had a heart attack, things like that. It's like, well, I was actually kind of, I'm fucked. I'm really lucky. I'm a, yeah, you were in it. Yeah. It hit me in the forehead. I should be dead, but no. And so I spent a lot of time for a while. I questioned it and I went sideways and tumbled around because on one hand, you think like, hey, you got shot in the head. You survived. You should be living like every day's a parade. In a lot of ways, mm-hmm. that's true. But that would only be if that experience existed in a vacuum. But that's not the case. That experience came with like lasting physical consequences. Since that day, I haven't been able to wear a hat things bother my head i get migraines real easy man and my face is always on fire it's getting better uh i had i went through a stem cell therapy program and uh it helped a little bit like every now and then i can wear a hat but only for a little bit but if you touch me on the forehead in the right spot i'll drop to my knees and then i'll be done for a, a long time i i may look big and scary but I have a strong Achilles heel that my my child my 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 son who even who and he was like three if he just tapped it dad's done boom and dad's done for hours and uh, would you mind if we talked a little bit about that day in Afghanistan? This is the perfect time to do it, man. What would you like to know? So I think that easily the most difficult part about your story of pursuing a career as a PJ was how it ended. Right. That after all this time you spent working toward becoming a PJ, you know, among friends that would become as close as family, you had to leave it behind. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that was all right. That, uh, That transition between being a PJ and not being able to be a PJ was very complicated, very, very, very painful. And I still, I don't know if I'm fully past it. And we're almost, well, we're like, we're over six years since I was officially medically retired. And so very briefly, because the book doesn't touch any of this, but very briefly, and there was a reason for that too. And I'll just, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the reason why I didn't include my post-deployment experience in this book Mm -hmm. because i believe that if i had included well shit man maybe in hindsight i should have but at the time when i wrote this i was in a very therapeutic state of mind where i was trying to focus on positive things and so 
when talk of post-deployment came up, I avoided it because I was trying to stay positive because I was deeply depressed. I was horribly depressed. Lots of feelings of uh, rejection, abandonment, feelings of being failed, feelings of uh, one thought that kept running through my mind was like, I hung it all out there. I did that. And this is how I'm being treated. It wasn't pretty. And I didn't want to paint the people who I worked with and the people I served with or the team I was a part of or the community I represented. I didn't want to paint them in a negative light mm -hmm. because overall I was feeling very positive about it. And I was, like I said before, I was trying to A, inspire next generations and B, inform the family. I didn't really want to go into that part because I felt like that. It, it's a, it's real ugly. It's really ugly. It's uglier than anything that's in the book. And the 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 reason it's so ugly is a lot of this shouldn't have happened. And in most other situations, it wouldn't have happened. And so because of me and because of my experience, a lot of things have changed. And so the people coming behind me are getting a lot better treatment than I did. Um, and uh, I really hope that's not a temporary thing. I really hope that if anything, it just keeps growing because these folks and it's not just the PJs, man. It's the people in the aircraft delivering PJs. It's it's the people working with the PJs. It's it, it shouldn't even have to be that specific. It should be the military. It should be first responders. It should be all this. It's like then maybe there needs to be like a way where people. Uh, sorry, man. I'm still in the mindset of writing college papers, and so. No, no, you're good, dude. This is this is great. This is how these these podcasts go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, well, then maybe there needs to be a review of the way we view these career fields and their long-term aftercare as a culture. I mean, if we're going to live in a society that has the healthcare industry we have, as in, like, it's not uh, universal, like, say canada or europe or whatever i don't i don't want to talk on insurance i can't debate that stuff i'm not smart on that but i know there's places in the world where people have universal-ish health care and there's not like veterans like me trying to shop around and making three days worth of phone calls to try to find anybody who takes tricare i should be able to just walk up to a doctor and be like help and they should be like no problem mm -hmm. That's the way it should be because it's not that way. I got really uh, in a bad way. I haven't really talked about this much. By in a bad way, do you mean that you were frustrated with kind of the brick wall that you kept running into? Frustrated probably would have been a good day. Okay. Angry. Suicidal. Okay. There was times where I 
actually put a barrel into my mouth. And although there are resources available for that, it's primarily for acute care to get talk you off that ledge mm. and maybe point you into some resources that'll help. I am in a resource desert, so to speak. And so when it when it got that close, man, like a lot of those days, it wasn't just because I was mentally going crazy and frustrated because I couldn't get care. I f- felt suicidal because the pain in my face was crushing me. I could barely move. My neck and my just my entire body hurt. If my son, who was at the time was three, touched me, I was, I was worthless, man. In addition to that, the way my pay was being taken care of was getting fucked with. I went for three months without pay one time. Actually, several times. The worst was through Christmas, and I had to reach out to local charities just to make sure I could pay fucking rent. It was horrible. The the government that I dedicated my life to, that I said I would protect, the Constitution I would protect, I did that. I got so hurt, I can't work. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find... Well, at the time, I was still in the military. Consider that. I was still in the military. I was in the National Guard. And there's a lot of details there. And I don't want to throw them under the bus, but I got fucked. And it was terrible. I lost everything during that period. I lost the lady I was married to. I lost a home. I have. I was homeless for. Here, this is Jimmy Settle, the guy you just read about in that book. Mm-hmm. The guy who did all those crazy things. He was homeless for a month, broke. I had nothing. And by homeless, do you mean sleeping on the streets, or were you in? I was in the woods, man. I went to the woods on base and on base down here. And there was a period of time too where like. I was living in parking lots and I would reach out to organizations and it would shut me down because either there wasn't resources or my case because I was still considered in the military. I didn't qualify yet. The military was fucking with me and I wasn't getting paid. I mean, dude, it was so bad. And you throw this physical pain that I had on top of that. Plus, I was trying to process, okay, I'm going through a divorce now. And on top of that, all this crazy shit I just went through in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I wasn't even still sure how to function in society. That's why I moved to the woods, man. It's like I, I didn't know how to operate. I was lost. I was as lost as you could be. And there was... I was down here in the Washington area and I had nobody. I had no social network. There was uh, like, I had no resources. I mean, I had left Alaska to be down here because 
right before I deployed, the, the my wife at the time, we she wanted to be close to her family because she her family's from the Seattle area. So we set up shop down here, but I still had a house and everything up in Alaska. That was the intention was to set her up down in Washington. I deploy. She has family resources to help with our kiddo. And then I come back and we move back up to Alaska. And then when all this went down, I just got stuck down here. And so there was nobody, I, I didn't have a friend's couch. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it was, uh, it was a real dark time. How common do you think that your experience is kind of the status quo with veterans? Well, man, I don't have statistics, but what I can tell you is this. When you're wearing the uniform and on orders, the government takes care of you. The DOD, the Department of Defense, you're an asset. There's something that's valuable. Even if you're injured and broken, they're still supposed mm -hmm. to take care of you because they want you to be useful again because they already put a ton of money into making you useful. When you walk away, when you break up or if they fire you or just ends, then the DOD doesn't handle you anymore. It, it falls under the, the guidance of the VA. And I hope the situation that I went through is rare, but, and hopefully it will become less rare in the future because with the implementation of computers and electronic files and the VA and the DOD mm -hmm. sharing files, I hope that people won't fall through the cracks. But once you leave the military, like when you're in the military, they provide housing, they make sure you got food because they don't want active duty people to be fucking homeless they want because that's not a good soldier so they give you a place to stay they give you food they give you clothes once that's over you don't get much and at best you're going to get health care and then you get educational benefits housing benefits and death benefits but once you're out that door there's nobody watching mm -hmm. to see if you fly away or you smack into the earth. And so it's kind of like the realm of uh, non-government organizations, nonprofits and things like that to keep their eye out for people separating from the military and making sure they don't crash and burn. And it's not really the government's responsibility. They've kind of written it out of their their hands you know they they're going to make sure that if you need medical care for like so many years after you separate from the military you get a couple years of free va health care and you know i gotta i gotta say that when i do get health care from the va it's it's pretty good i'm i'm happy with it um but i don't get most of my health health care from the va and you know that's kind of for personal reasons really but, um, sorry, jumping back to 
once you leave that military and that's like a nest of safety where your basic needs are covered and you're out, you're kind of on your own and uh, there's nobody checking to see what happens. And so I wonder, that's a good question, man. I wonder what the percentages are because they give you the benefit, the VA provides benefits that will help you succeed. But they're not so much focused on preventing you from cratering into the earth. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that that seems very similar to the medical industry where they are in the business of treating an injury or a disease and not being proactive about preventing it. I think that's, I like that. I like that. So we've been talking about the repercussions of you being injured in Afghanistan. I was wondering if maybe we could talk about what went down in Afghanistan. Sure, man. Um, so to give some, some backstory, um, I, uh, let me give you the elevator pitch. All right. So I joined uh, the pararescue team up in Alaska to go around and save lives, mostly in Alaska. And there's some family history there. But I wanted to, I wanted to be a badass who was helping people. And, uh, and it's a pretty awesome career field. And it's really, really hard to, to, to become a PJ. And so I'm kind of a competitive person. And so I saw it as a challenge and something I dedicated my life to. And once I learned what it was. And so before, before I became a PJ, I trained for like a year. I was already a really accomplished runner and athlete in general. And uh, I just had to fine tune my skill set. And so I trained for a year to try out to be a PJ. And the tryout was the hardest workout I'd ever had. And then that became the standard workout because that's what it took to become a PJ. And so I did that for a year. And then um, I got accepted and I went to all the military training. It took like a little over two years of training to become a PJ. And uh, then when I graduated with my cool little maroon beret and my green feet and all that stuff i uh i went up to alaska to go do search and rescue stuff up in alaska and uh in order to be qualified to even do that is almost another six months of additional training on top of the two plus years of training i'd already had so in a sense they already invested years into me just to give me just enough information to where they could train me to do my job. So it was like pre-college for a doctoral degree of some weird sorts. Mm -hmm. And so it was, I was on team in Alaska for almost two years before I got tapped for my first deployment. And uh, it was to Afghanistan in uh, October of 2010. And, um, we uh, flew away all the all the way across the country, all the way around the world. It was crazy. There's all sorts of stories mixed in there, and we land in uh, 
Bagram, which is in the kind of the eastern, north, central, eastern general area, kind of north of Kabul in Afghanistan. And I'm coming from Alaska, you know? Mm -hmm. And so from an Alaskan perspective, first off, this place is at like 7,000 feet. It's pretty high up there. And uh, I was just feeling really dehydrated and lightheaded. But everything's orange, orange and red. It's what Mars would look like, I think. And uh, very arid. Very, no, I didn't really see any vegetation unless it was man-made. There wasn't any naturally occurring vegetation. And there was a combination of sand dunes, but also like jagged mountain, jagged mountains and stuff like that. Because we we're like part of the foothills of the the uh, the Himalayans. And so it was a little bit of an adjustment. And uh, so I'm based out of Bagram. And our role was to pretty much, we had two functions. One, if an Air Force asset crashed anywhere, we're going, boo, let's go get it. And if uh, we shared what they called CSAR, which is Combat Search and Rescue, we shared CSAR rotations with um, Dustoff, which is an Army variant of uh, uh, a PJ, but it's mostly a medic who's aircrew qualified. They don't have to go do scuba diving or skydiving or anything like that. Uh, and then there's, I think there's a third asset in theater, but my memory isn't that good. So anyways, uh, like I was saying earlier about being a PJ back home, it was the same thing about being downrange. It was, we'd have like 24 hours on, 24 hours off kind of thing. And uh, you're sitting alert, waiting for emergencies to come through. And, you know, there's like a good amount of downtime. You know, it's a good time to get fucking jacked and work out. Like, oh, I've, I've been a runner my whole life. Mm -hmm. wonder what I'd look like with pecs. <laughs> and so, <laughs> it's, uh, you get to play with stuff, you know. And a lot of guys will take online classes and stuff like that. And, uh so there's there was a degree of complacency yes we're in a theater of combat every now and then you hear gunshots and boom booms and stuff like that and of course you know every day we're flying broken people but where we were it was pretty chill and then two weeks into my uh, deployment my unit was sick of being so chill and so we leaned forward into an army operation and that was intended to go clear clear up uh, a valley. And Roger ran into really great detail about it. And I don't want to step on any of stuff because or repeat it or anything. Like I can't speak as well as Raj. So I'll just give my perspective on things. We went from Bagram to this uh tiny little like so Bagram would be the equivalent of say say soldatna in size okay it's it's big it's a really big ass base but on the radar of things it's not all that big but we went from that to something that was just like a cul-de-sac about that much geographical footprint but let me back that bagram is maybe bigger maybe like eagle river if you 
roll the calendar back a little bit, like 10 years before it expanded so much. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, maybe about, you know, 20 school, 20 mile radius or so. Anyways, where we went to was a tiny little cul-de-sac, like the very end of a neighborhood. And all around us were like high mountains and, uh, it was all desert. And, uh, there was, uh, there was a small stream that, uh, civilization had sort of posted up on and around the stream and they would have like, uh, there would be trees and stuff. That's how you can kind of see where the stream was, mostly palm trees, but you'd see clusters of humanity mm-hmm. in small groupings along this. And they often coincided with like the architecture of the mountains. And if you look up the mountains, you see they're very terraced, like, which means they're like built up with walls instead of it being like naturally earth slopey. Somebody went through and, and built walls. Like we do grid lines on a map for elevation or elevation lines. And so you have these six foot walls of stone that are holding up these flat sections of earth so that they make these huge flat sections. And on those sections, they do mostly farming and stuff when it rains, but also there's little huts and houses and things like that and buildings. And that's, uh, was the general environment we were in. And from in there, the bad guys, I don't, I'm confused on the fucking label to throw at them because it changes so often. But the bad guys, they would, uh, and they don't wear uniforms, so it makes it even harder to label them. But they would uh, hop out of these places and lob stuff at us or launch things at us or shoot at us because they could see over our walls. We had walls that were probably close to 20 feet high, but they could get elevation on us and shoot down into us. It was no problem for them. And so we weren't exactly, like, cozy. And we had a space for about eight helicopters and a giant-ass fuel bladder. And right next to that was a uh, tiny little, uh, like, a mash unit. Uh, They're called forward surgical teams. But it was basically, like, a four- to six- bed trauma center and that was where we would bring folks that and another place called uh i think it was abad or jbad there was two places we'd bring folks within 15 minutes of this conflict to try to get them treated and moved on but so but that's where we stayed i think it was called fop joyce i might be wrong the the boys will correct you in the comment correct me in the comments Um, so that's where we were staying and it wasn't uncommon for us to get fired on and stuff like that. And, uh, so our first night there, we're just kind of gearing down, getting our stuff all set up. We're almost a little lackadaisical, just considering the general temperament of the theaters we've been operating in. You know, it was our, our, our inserts when we would fly our helicopters in, we were, we were working out of helicopters. And when we flew our helicopters in, we didn't fly them actually. When the pilots flew our helicopters in, uh, we were generally unopposed there. We might get shot at every now and then and flares might pop off and stuff, but we weren't taking a whole lot of accurate direct fire. You know what I mean? And so when we moved to go support this army mission, and it's called uh, Operation Bulldog Bite. Uh, 
two, and it has some letters after it. I, I, come on, why don't you just make it three or four or five? <laughs> Operation Bulldog Bite Two. <laughs> and so, when we moved forward to go position there, like our first day, we're taking fire. We're like, holy shit! But we're still like, whatever, bros. It's cool. <laughs> we get geared up, and uh, we're sitting alert. And like within the first day of the operation, there's a nine line is what they call it. There's a call for help. The call for help for medical help in the military world world is called a nine line. And they call it a nine line because there's nine specific lines of information that are being transmitted. That's how creative military is. Like it's the only nine line list in the military. It's a nine line. <laughs> okay. All other lists have to be greater or less than nine. No other can be nine. <laughs> Anyways, nine lines are the are the nine one one in the uh, in the combat theater, and so we got our first launch or our first nine line, and gearing up. And uh, the goal is to be airborne in less than five minutes from a nine line drop. So that means you're never very far from the helicopters and you're always like three quarters dressed at most. Maybe you'll go down to your shorts or something like that. But if you're on alert, you're right there. Everything's right there. And so it was exciting. And it's like, woohoo, here we go. You know, like high five in my buddies. We took pictures and then we're spinning up. And when we, when we launch on nine lines, we launch with two helicopters that way, especially in a combat theater. That way, one helicopter can kind of hover in a position, which makes it really vulnerable. So one helicopter can hover in a position, and another helicopter can orbit it, and that kind of protects the hovering helicopter. And so when we were spinning up, the second helicopter broke, and a big piece of, uh, like uh, they call it what, a rotor blade stopper, something like that. It's like a an important piece of the helicopter flew off. It was most unfortunate. And that second bird couldn't launch. Uh, and so we had a, the pilots reached up into the Air Force command network and got a good idea of what the assets that were available and decided, you know, they communicated everybody and decided we had enough coverage with what was around because there was like Apaches and fighter jets and shit. It was pretty cool. There was a man. America has a badass military. I tell you what. Anyways, we uh, launch single bird instead of two birds, and uh, which really wouldn't have changed anything. I don't think. I don't think it would have changed a dang thing. With my story, if there was what uh, more or less helicopters. Yeah, I don't think the number of helicopters would have mattered. I think the only thing that mattered was that I was there. Okay. I mean, because there's nothing the second helicopter could have done that would have protected me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Prevented it from happening. Because what happened was we flew, we launched on this mission to go rescue some army dudes who got really beat up and they needed help. And this is like flying, uh, if you're familiar with the... Uh, the Chugach Mountains behind Anchorage, it's like a whole hundred miles of like looking at uh, um, the second range back there. Back there by Rabbit Lake, how those mountains just shoot straight up 
like if you were to walk up flat top and they just keep going and going and going, how the mountains get more and more jagged. Okay. When they get so jagged, you can't even walk on them. That's what we're talking about in terms of Afghanistan. Okay. And there was an army group of army dudes who were stuck really high up and they weren't stuck because of mother nature. They were stuck because bad guys were beating them up. And so we flew over them and uh, had them pop smoke and call the color. And then we saw them and then we, because uh, you're traveling at almost 200 miles an hour at this point, because when you're in a helicopter, you're an easy target. So the only ways to really protect yourself from being shot is to fly really fast and really low. And so we're about 100 to 200 feet off the deck. Like I could see people's faces, but we're going 200 miles an hour. And we're like, we'll be back in a second, guys, because we didn't want to make our approach the first time all slow and lackadaisical to draw fire. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We wanted to come in. When when we come in on purpose, we will still come in super fucking hot, but the pilot will bank the helicopter so hard that it jumps in the air. It's the craziest feeling. Helicopters will skip through the air like a rock on top of water if the pilot yanks it hard enough, fast enough, and the whole helicopter will dance like boom, 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 boom. Everything is flying all over the place. And then next thing you know, you're there's no more momentum and you're right on top of your target. It's the craziest thing. I was going 200 miles an hour. I did some shaking and baking. And now I'm here. Cool. And um, so that's our general technique, right? I just gave a whole bunch of information away to the enemies. Whatever. Good luck. Anyways, in order to do that, you have to go a long ways away to turn around. When you're going 200 miles an hour, it takes a long time to turn around. And so by the time we came back, uh, somebody was uh, a bad guy. He knew exactly where we were going, and he was able to to shoot at us mm-hmm. accurately. And uh, I was sitting on the left side of the helicopter with the main door open with my feet hanging out. If the nose of the helicopter is a 12 o'clock and the tail is a 6, I was looking at like the 9 o'clock to the 6 o'clock. And around the 7 o'clock, I saw three flashes. I saw a dude in all black hop out of one of these huts way up high on the mountain. And they're not huts. They're like uh, adobe houses or something. They're square-shaped mud and rock. And dude jumped out. I saw three muzzle flashes, and before I could do anything, I heard a thwack, and I was flying through the air. What I didn't know was that those three muzzle flashes were very accurate. The first muzzle flash hit the motor drive on the 50 caliber machine gun that I was sitting right next to. The second one went through the floor of the helicopter and got me in the forehead. And then the third one, hit the rotor shaft in the rear of the helicopter controlling the rear rotor blade, which is a very important piece of equipment for stability and control. And so in some ways I hold that guy in really high regard, 
because he hit something moving real fast, very accurately with three like critical shots. Because if his first shot hadn't hit the motor drive for that 50 cal, the 50 cal would have opened up on him right then and there. I still would have got hit for sure, but he wouldn't have survived much longer. As it was, the experience I had is I saw the three flashes before I could even communicate or return fire. I'm flying through the air. I hear this crazy. I heard the crazy thwack sound, and it's all black for a while. And there's this brief thought in my mind where, like, as I'm flying through the air before I sort of like lose my consciousness, is my paramedic training kicked in, and it's like, dude, you just got hit in the forehead because I could just tell where the sound came from. And the second thought is. Oh, that's a terrible place for an injury because that really will affect your brain. Yeah. And third thought was like, oh, God. If I survive this, I'm going to be a better father for my son. And then it just all goes black. And uh, when I come to my teammate, Brandon Stamke, he's pulling me in the helicopter because I flew past him. I was tied to the helicopter. I never would have fallen out, but I was far enough to, out where he had to like kind of pull me in and treat me. And he's like, I could hear him on comms because I'm still connected to the aircraft communication system. I can hear him screaming, Jimmy's been hit. Jimmy's been hit. And uh, I thought I was blind at first because all the blood filled my eyes. And because uh, head injuries, they bleed real bad. No matter how terrible the injury is it could be a minor head injury and it'll bleed terribly mm -hmm. and so i couldn't see man and so i thought i was blind and then i pull my glasses off and wipe my eyes and like oh i can see oh it's just blood and then <laughs> and then it kind of now i can laugh about it because now i survived i can look back and laugh at like the steps in the treatment because like there was bullet fragments in my skull. It never penetrated my skull. It went outside the skull, but inside the scalp. And so my the whole my whole head was kind of tore up. And internally, there was some damage in the layers between the 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 hair follicles all the way down to the skull. There's a lot of nerve damage and stuff like that that exists today. But at the time, there was metal fragments in there that were still really hot, and it hurt really bad. Do you know why you're your face burns so much yeah because the fragments all shredded up the trigeminal nerve on my left side and uh so there's like a i'm good till almost like my uh, uh eye duct on my left eye if you go from my eye duct to my left eye towards the right side of my head i'm totally fine but in the quadrant from that eye duct on the left eye to behind my ear it's pretty jacked up. And so what was funny is my partner was trying to treat the bleed because I was bleeding like crazy. And so he kept trying to put this gauze on my face, putting pressure on it. But every time he did it, he was pushing the metal onto the nerves and it was making the pain so bad. Mm -hmm. And so I would push him off <laughs> and he would jump back on me and I'd push him off and he would <laughs> jump back on me. <laughs> And then he got to the point, he's like, give me the gauze. I'll put it on myself. Okay. 
But then I laid there, and it was like a five-minute flight, maybe 10, 15. It was a very short flight because of the damage the helicopter took and the damage I took. We aborted the rescue mission and uh, flew back to the nearest surgical hospital. And uh, when we landed, they brought out the uh, the uh, the cart to bring me in. And I was like, no, I'm walking. I'm walking in. I'm not going to – I don't know. I'm not some tough guy. I'm not a crazy tough guy. I'm very uh, sensitive to pain and everything. And I'm not, I don't have any points to prove to anybody. I'm not trying to prove anything. But in that moment, I felt I had to prove to the enemies, the people who shot me, that they may have hurt me, but they didn't take me out. Mm-hmm. And so I walked off the helicopter into the hospital and then like we'll skip a little bit but like you know so the good news is i got some x-rays right there the bullet didn't penetrate my skull bad news they can't do anything about the bullet fragments that are all over my scalp so we're just going to sew it in place cool throw a bandage on it and then uh the people that we went to rescue got the second helicopter that broke it got repaired and they launched and rescued those dudes after the Air Force uh, softened the area of enemies. They added a pool or two, maybe a, something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, we, uh, while I was laying there in the bed, I see uh, PJ walk in, running with a litter, and he's got army dudes. I'm like, oh, jeez, how many? And he's like, five! I'm like, oh, and I ho- there's only three beds in this particular surgical unit that we're in. So I hopped off and I was like, bring him here. Let me start treating him. And then the doc came through. I was like, okay, yeah, you keep doing what you're doing. And then you move on to the next guy and the next guy. And uh, so I went from being a patient. Was, I still had gauze and blood all over my face. And here I am treating the dudes I went to go save. And there was a couple guys that just looked at me like, what the fuck? Who are you? <laughs> What's happening right now? <laughs> and so, you know, about a day later, you know, I'm back on the helicopter. The bullet fragment's still sewn in my head. And uh, flying missions, pulling dudes out of gnarly, completely denied area combat. Like, our helicopters are receiving battle damage every single mission pulled out tons of dudes you know and it wasn't easy it took a lot of us i wasn't the only one we wound up recruiting us we pulled our reserves in we had two teams and a a third team in reserve and we've had to tap into our reserves and so it was a massive event so it went from something that was going to be kind of like lackadaisical to something that was like oh we've never seen anything like this before Mm -hmm. this is arguably the most combat rescue helicopters have seen on a extended basis in a really long time maybe even since vietnam you know where you're going back to the same area over and over for a week pulling people out and getting shot at every time mm-hmm. i don't think there are many pl- scenarios like that that exist so to be part of that is really special and that's something i try to remind myself you know because in a weird way through that whole experience you know, I got physically injured. However, 
I had a couple of really close friends, Roger Sparks and Koa Bailey. They too were just as close to losing their lives in their part in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was gnarly. Like we, lo- we could have lost a lot of people. I saw RPGs fly through helicopters. I saw crazy shit. I saw things I never thought I would see. Like I've been on the receiving end of anti-aircraft tracer fire. And it's not like anything I ever expected to see RPGs fired at you in real life while you're in a helicopter is a trip, man. Mm-hmm. Never thought I'd to know. It. It's like, Oh, that's what fireworks are like. I get it. But you know, they're a little baby version. So it's a super powerful experience, you know, and, uh, I was so glad, so glad to be part of it. And, uh, so that lasted for like a week and then it was over. It was weird, I guess. Yeah. These things are just weird like that. So this next question actually comes from our mutual friend, John Stallone. He asks, what was it like to prioritize your own immediate triage and yet still be able to carry on working on patients, even though fragmented metal from a helicopter had just launched into your head? Well, that question, John, is a very good one and is very easily answered. When you decide to be part of the rescue community, whether you're the pointy end of the spear as a PJ or a crow, which is the officer version with combat rescue officer, or if you're the flight engineer or a gunner or whatever they call them now, or one of the pilots or the navigators or whatever, you swear an oath that's even on top of the traditional military oath. And it closes with these things we do that others may live. And so that by itself is pretty powerful. But if you rewind it a little bit, it's like we place our duties before our own personal desires and our own personal comforts. That's part of it. And to say it is one thing. To say it every day for years adds to that one thing. But to have that one thing challenged in a real world, like how serious are you about your oath? You've been taking this oath. How serious are you about it? It's like you're constantly being tested. Exactly. That's how I viewed it. It's like, yeah, sure. My personal desires are to lay down and cry or whatever. (laughs) And and my comforts are really, I want to go home. Mm -hmm. It sucks. But (laughs) yeah. No, man, that stuff's, that doesn't, that doesn't matter. That's not what's important. What's important is the mission, is the the creed, the brotherhood, all that stuff. Was there a moment when all of that just took complete hold of you? You know, there was no second guessing. There was, there was nothing that was holding you back. It was, you know, you, you would officially throwing your entire self into it. I knew after the doctor said that the bullet fragments didn't penetrate my skull, they were going to have to force me out. I wasn't going to out of that situation. It was like, there wasn't any, 
not ego involved, maybe a small degree of payback or something like that, but payback in the form of I'm going to de deny you kills. Like, you know, <laughs> one of my favorite things to do in video games and stuff, like especially when there's lots of people in first-person shooter type scenarios, my favorite thing is like denying people kills. That is more fun to me than actually getting kills. And uh, so that's how I viewed my role. I'm not saying I wouldn't kill if I had to, but my motivation was not the focus of killing. It was the focus of saving people. And so I got knocked down. I got knocked down really, really hard. And it hurt real bad. But I could get back up. And the way I saw it, the way I saw that scenario, when I was in that Ford surgical hospital and they were bringing people in that I was supposed to rescue, but I got hurt and I failed to rescue them, I was like, oh, I'm not done. I'm getting back in this game. I'm, I'm not done here. This is like the equivalent of being a football player in the Super Bowl, you know, mm -hmm. and having an injury. You're going to play hurt. And I think that's a, a large part of the pararescue community is that a lot of us play hurt. Because if you are a little too hurt, they're going to pull you off the mission. And you don't want that because that's the whole reason you're hurting is for the, to move that mission forward. And then you also get punished too. If you get pulled off missions, you lose pay and stuff like that. And that's not cool. Especially if you got hurt while you're doing a mission. I mean, come on. That's silly, right? But none of those factors were in my mind at the time. At the time, it was I got hit and I didn't break. I'm going to stand back up and I'm going to push it back. That was pretty much it. it. It wasn't about ego either. It was just like a, I want to bring my whole team in on this thing. You know, mm -hmm. I've always been a very much of a team player. And so... Uh, because I think there's a lot of strengths when you can have, I think when you get teams, man, you're greater than the sum of your individual parts. You know, you can uh, be great because we can inspire each other. Right. And that was a large part of it because I knew that if I back down, then one of my brothers may fellow PJs would be sitting in my seat. And what if he got fucking killed? How would I feel about myself? You know, and so there's a large, like, protecting my brother's factor. And that's just something like, you know, you, you hear about it all the time. We're like, I would die for you. Yeah. But would you? Would you get back in the helicopter so that I don't have to? Mm -hmm. I, I don't even want you to have to ask that question. So I got back in the helicopter. I didn't want to ask that, man. It's too much. Do you still talk to your, your buddies? I do, yeah. Um, not all of them, and not all of them as much as I would like, but there's a handful that, um, I mean, because like a large part is I lost touch with a lot of people when I went through a long, dark period. Because in addition to the emotional and physical pain I was going through, I also was experiencing some pretty severe memory issues, too. and. Uh, I just didn't know who people were. I would see names on my phone 
I didn't know who that was, or I'd see a face and they would know my name and know everything about me, but I wouldn't know who they were. And it was terrifying. And so I secluded myself from society until I could get my shit together. In that process, I lost touch with a lot of people. Do you know why that was happening? Why you were forgetting people's names and forgetting people in general? Yeah. Uh, I mean, outside of myself, uh, it's easy to point the finger at uh, a traumatic brain injury and uh, PTSD. You know, those two together, it's, uh, it's a perfect cocktail for um, memory issues and all sorts of stuff that's not not pleasant at all. And then it can really have a pretty negative effect on the thing is, is like when those two come in, it's a very abrupt change. You know, it's not a gradual change. And so there's like a shearing effect to where the norms are all shredded. Like, you're, you're grasping for some sense of stability or normalness or something that you can, like, count on. It's, uh, and for me, it was throwing everything I had at saving people. And I owe it all to the training because they pounded our heads with trauma medicine. And trauma medicine is arguably pretty, like, learnable for the most part. There's definitely some advanced skills. I'm not going to deny that. But stopping bleeding, putting in fluids, and keeping breathing, it's pretty basic. And you've had it pounded in your head for a couple of years. And so when I started realizing I was having issues, I held on to that trauma medicine aspect. Oh, you're, you're, you're cutting out. Oh, man. You know what? I have an idea. So I'm going to hang up and uh, I, I'm going to call you right back on my phone and we'll just finish this on my phone. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Talk to you soon. Okay, talk to you soon. Let me press record. So you were talking about uh, trauma medicine. Yeah, yeah. So after I got got hit and I was uh and my world was going crazy I grasped to, uh trauma medicine in treating the uh, injured people in front of me because you know their pain was way worse than the pain I was experiencing you know some of these people were missing limbs or large chunks of their body and things like that you know I just had a little bit of headache of course, I'm playing it down a little, but still, compared to some of these other people, it was minor. And so it was easy for me to push aside my uh, physical and psychological pain or whatever I was going through, you know what I mean, and focus on the problems right in front of me. And, you know, that can be really useful for a little while, at least. It's not sustainable, you know, because, like, Obviously, my the pain. What I wasn't able to uh, avoid the pain and and all that stuff once I came back. Once I was while I was in theater, I mean, it was easy to stay focused on the mission because it's like 
um, I changed nothing to those guys. But then it's like, when you come back home and it's like, uh, well, people are complaining about how their food is cooked or, or silly little things, you know, and here I am used to dealing with life and death and it's like the pain becomes weird, you know, it's, it's weird. And there's a whole lot of weird stuff going on in that transition. But uh, while I was there, I was able to harness the energy created from that pain and stuff for the mission. You know, I just kept cranking. And uh, it was super useful. And, you know, I even kind of enjoyed it, too. You know, I enjoyed the uh, the work. I enjoyed being able to help people. It was, uh, you're so focused. Like when somebody's bleeding out in front of you, there's not a whole lot of mental bandwidth left over for personal problems or anything else, really, you know? Mm-hmm. You, you, and so in that weird way, it's sort of therapeutic too. And uh, But it was easy to grab onto and use that as my focus to get through, you know? And then I got hungry for it. I wanted more missions and stuff, you know? problems came when I came home and like realized I I really couldn't function as a PJ anymore I was physically and mentally too messed up you know and at first that stuff wasn't really recognized and so I went untreated for a while and things got haywire and then eventually got the right people noticed and uh, took really good care of me and uh, made sure, you know, the right things happened. And so, you know, there's a happy ending to all this craziness. And, you know, one thing, you know, I'd like to really uh, say is that if I was faced with the uh, opportunity to roll back the clock and do something differently, I don't think I would. Even with all the crazy pain and almost dying and losing everything, including my mind for a little bit and then coming back, I I think that was uh, an important journey for me. My only uh, thing is like maybe I, I, I wish I was a PJ at a younger age to where I could have enjoyed the work for a longer period of time because all said and done, I only operated as a PJ from 2008 to like 2011 and it took almost that long to become a PJ. And so, you know, one of the hardest parts and you sort of touched on it earlier, man, it's like how hard I worked at becoming a PJ. And then because I, did the ultimate PJ thing and I lived the ultimate most extreme PJ experience and I rose to the call. I lived the oath. After that, instead of being treated as like awesome, I was neglected and kicked aside, you know, and that was weird. And I was neglected because I couldn't operate as a PJ anymore. And in that community, the mindset is that if you're not functional enough to operate, then you don't matter because they're so task saturated that they just need 
operators. And if you can't operate, then they can't waste their time and energy on you. It's not the individual's fault. It's the whole structure of the institution. And so that was one of the reasons that things were real crazy, man. Is like, I thought I did the ultimate PJ thing. I mean, I didn't do it thinking with the intention of doing it. I just did what I thought was the thing I was supposed to do when I was doing it. That's as far as I thought. What am I supposed to do right now? And I would just think about myself. Okay, I feel like, should I get on the helicopter to go fly out to the next mission? Or should I get on that other helicopter to go fly home? Hmm. What if I spent so much energy doing? i trying to help people. But dude, you're broken, man. You're kind of messed up. You have a total free pass to go home. You got a free ticket home out of a combat zone where people are trying to kill you. You should take it. Then the other side is like, but bro, you have worked so hard and you focus so much energy on these mantras and this this specific moment. This was the moment that I had been training for, I guess, so to speak, that thousands of PJs have trained, not thousands, hundreds of PJs have trained for. There aren't thousands of PJs. That's the other thing. The community is really small. There's only hundreds of us. Uh, but hundreds of PJs have trained and uh, sworn that they would do exactly as I did. And in that same situation, you got hurt, but still you're going to put other people's lives before your own lives. And this was the test. And it was one of those opportunities in life where it's like you get to walk the walk, talk, talk, kind of sign off, validate your belief system. There's not many times in your life where you get to validate your belief system. And this was one of those. And, uh, I mean, I didn't necessarily recognize it as that in the moment. I can see it looking back. But in the moment... I felt like I was faced with what do I feel is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, and, and you guys heard that's, that's after that, I got back on the helicopter. I threw up on the flight. I got back on the helicopter to go rescue people. And on that first flight back and my first mission back with big gold bandaid on my head and everything, I threw up and I threw up outside the helicopter. I was scared. I was really scared, especially when the bullets started flying again. But as soon as that helicopter got in the hover, I had a job. And my personal feelings and fears and discomforts, all that stuff, doesn't matter, man. You got a job. There's somebody down there dying. Get down there. Stop that dying. Bring it back. Let's get out of here. And so I miss that a little bit. You know, you don't. There's not many places in life where there's that sort of extreme focus of energy. But I'm also sort of glad for that, too, because uh, I would get cold pretty quick. So from what I've read, and then now after talking with you, I would imagine that you've since pivoted your path to something just as meaningful as, as being a PJ. And it sounds like you are going back to, or going to college uh, to become a psychologist? Is that... Well, I don't know. If I, I don't... The psychology bug has bit me. It's too premature. I, uh... 
am going to become a psychologist. However, if I did, I believe I would have a lot to bring to the table with my experiences, and especially with veterans and people who've experienced traumatic events. I think I can empathize with what they're going through on a real world instead of academic or intellectual basis, you know. But with that comes a heavy burden of carrying other people's loads. And it's not like they just give that the privilege to do that away freely. You have to earn that. You know, you got to go through school and stuff. And so I'm just beginning that journey. And it seems like a cool idea. And uh, I really enjoy it, you know, because it's bringing a lot of context to some things, you know, I've kind of sort of, sort of feel. I mean, I, yeah. And so if I, one thing I want to do is keep helping people. And I feel like that's a way, an area I maybe could help people, you know, without having being shot at, you know, mm-hmm. but otherwise I've been directing my energy heavily into school and just kind of improving myself, learning more things, expanding my, my, my worldview and then taking care of my family. Like I'm in a, as a student using the GI bill, I don't really have to work a whole lot so I can be at home a lot. And it's pretty cool, man. I can spend time with my wife and my son. And that's pretty cool. And, um, so I try to really take advantage of these opportunities to be home and be available. I walk dogs a lot, getting into art, stuff i do some random silk screening like shitty tattoos on my gear so i can tell my cool jacket from everybody else's cool jacket <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise man yeah i'm just trying to help people and help my life and keep grinding i'm working towards something but you know life's funny like that uh you don't always see the spot you're going to land when you let go of the thing you're holding on to. You just kind of have to sort of go with that. And, uh, you know, to fight that generates a lot of anxiety and stuff, you know, I think maybe I'm inoculated to a lot of that giving, uh, of anxiety to letting go to the universe because, you know, I've, already surrendered myself to death on multiple occasions and with that you know comes a degree of like okay the hand the, my fate is not always in my hand and with that it can either generate anxiety because you want to control things and if you try to do that there's, there's not a lot of positive benefits but I find that if you can sort of accept that embrace it and sort of come at peace with it, if not a degree of happiness, because with accepting the the fact that not every aspect of your life is under your control is there's a degree of freedom to where you can relax and not feel like you have to control things and that you can just relax and trust that it's going to happen like it's supposed to happen. And, you know, that's just kind of the path I've been on lately. I don't, I don't mean to sound like some, like Eastern guru or anything like that, but I'm, uh, I'm trying to make peace with myself and my experiences, you know, and, and that, that sort of helps me 
So, I don't know. If it helps somebody else, that's awesome. If you think I'm bullshit, cool. Fuck it. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyways, man. (laughs) What else you got on your your question board there, sir? That's it, man. That that does it for my questions. Uh, I just wanted to, to thank you so much for being on the show, Jimmy. This has been an honor. Uh, likewise, man. Thanks for listening to me. I uh, really appreciate you uh, just listening to me, you know. I kind of really ran the mic on that. You, I didn't give you much time on the microphone. I apologize. <laughs> well, sometimes that's just how it goes. You had a lot to say, and uh, I was happy to listen. Oh, thanks, man. I hope, it, uh, hope it's meaningful to you and uh, the people that listen to this podcast. I, I think you're doing good stuff, man. Keep it up. Is there anything else you, you'd you like to say, or how do you want to end this? That's tough, right? Um, uh, well, listen to inspirationally. Life isn't guaranteed to be easy. But if you work at it, you can find some fun. And if you can find some fun while you're working, then you're winning. All those times I was doing shitty things, I tried to find things to laugh at. Oh, man. That's why I had naked guy poker cards in my pockets at all times. Because I thought they were funny. Granted, we're more advanced in our thinking nowadays. But I thought that shit was funny. And I would stick naked dude playing cards in people's pockets all the time. And I thought that shit was funny. It made me laugh. In the middle of, like, throwing a tourniquet on a dude's hemorrhaging leg. In the process, I would whip out a naked dude playing card, stuff it in one of his pockets that I know wouldn't get cut off. And get back to work like like nothing happened, just to make me giggle a little bit. So find enjoyment in weird things, you know. When you're working and life or in in something you're working on kind of sucks, there's something cool in there, man. Make it fucked up in your own little cool weird way. That's uh, that's what makes us cool people. That's what makes people cool and kind of makes uh, gives humanity flavor, gives us a reason to live. We're not robots. Have a sense of humor. Have some fun. There you go. I love you guys. Thanks for having me, man. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me. Cody Liska for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.